Mackenzie, how's it going, bud? Good, how about you, man? Before the age of 30, smashing off the big five? Yeah, not yet. Getting there. Getting close, but not there yet. <laughs> yeah, so just before we get into it, uh, you've definitely been a, a massive influence in the South African hunting industry. Um, I, that's your contagious and infectious um, way of approaching the dark continent and, and South African hunting industry has definitely kept a, a lot of people interested and wanting to find out a little bit more of what you do. But um, before we get into that, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, let's take it from there. Yeah, so uh, my name is Mackenzie Sims. I, I live in Evanston, Wyoming right now, um, looking to relocate this year. Um, almost 28 years old, 28 years young, I guess, is what you'd, a lot of people would call it. And I... Uh, there's not much more in life that I love than than Africa and hunting Africa. That's pretty much all I think about. I read tons and tons of books on it. It is pretty much all I I really care about, really. So tell us where it all started. Um, from I mean, I'm sure you weren't even you weren't even 20 years old before you shot your first buffalo. So tell us where the affection for hunting number one and number two the the love and passion you have for Africa. Where did that all start? <laughs> yeah, I was in my teens when I shot my first buffalo, but uh, so like my dad, he's from uh, Arkansas and Alabama. That's where he grew up. So he hunted, you know, my grandpa, uh, his dad was like a big quail hunter, was a bird hunter, wasn't really a big game hunter. They shot deer every once in a while, but they weren't like, you know, big game hunters. My dad would hunt deer and then he moved out here to Wyoming during the 70s, during the oil boom. Um, and that's what we do is oil and gas construction. That's what we do for a living. Um, so he moved out here during that, and then obviously kind of, you got to where he was hunting deer and elk because we live in Wyoming, you could buy a deer and elk tag over the counter, you know? And so he would do that and he would actually, um, he would quit his job September 1st and go hunting all of September and October. And then if they would hire him back, he'd go back or he'd go find a new one. Cause there was so much work around here. You could just, you know, they were hiring people out of the culverts here. It was crazy. There were so many people living in this small town that didn't have enough housing for them. Um, and then, so that was kind of the deal. And then him, and my mom got married. And then in 1998, I think two years after I was born, he started his own business, his own oil and gas construction business. Um, and yeah, he was gone a lot. And, and the only time we really went and did anything, he didn't go to like sports and stuff. I me. Mean, we would go hunting, like we'd go out deer and elk hunting for a week or something. And so we were at a log home show because they wanted to build a log house. And we were just walking around. And, you know, I was 2006. I was like 10 years old, 9, 10 years old. And you know how a kid at a house show is going to be. He's going to be bored. So I was just walking around. And sure enough, there's two South Africans sitting in their booth. And they just had a little their little hunting booth at this trade show. And I was like, what the hell? So I sat and talked to them for a while and they were just passing time between like Dallas and SCI. You know, they were just filling in gaps with other trade shows and talked to them for, I don't know, a couple hours. And I wish I knew who they were too. Cause I'd love to go back and like, just be like, thank you guys. But so like they talked to me and I was like, well, how old do you have to be to hunt in Africa? Cause here in Wyoming, you have to be 12 to hunt big game. And I'm like, Oh, you don't gotta be a certain age. You just gotta be safe with the rifle and can shoot. And I'm like, well, hell yeah, this is game on. So I told my parents what they said. And my dad, you know, I think he, at first he was kind of like, yeah, whatever, you know. He's like, but, well, if you can pay for the plane ticket, we'll take you. And I'm like, game on. So I would do like lemonade stands and stuff like that, which didn't make me any money. Um, I did that. But what I did was a 4-H pig. I did two pigs every year for 4-H. 
and I'd be able to sell one at the the junior livestock sale in August. So I had uh, two pigs and whatever. And, and the cool thing about back then when it was real busy around here, there was a lot of big companies. You had Shell or Chevron, BP, like you had companies like that around here in the oil and gas industry. And so there was a lot of work. So you could go politic a lot and get people to come bid on your stuff at the 4-H sales. You'd give free dinner tickets and stuff. And so what I did is I just went and gave out a bunch of free dinner tickets, invited people to come bid on my pig. And uh, I was towards the end of the night on the sale. And uh, by the time I, my pig was done, I'd got like 2800 bucks out of the thing. So, I mean, that was more than enough for a plane ticket to Africa. I told the ran up and hugged the lady and looked at my dad and said, let's book the trip. And so from there, um, our dentist here in town, he'd been to Africa four or five times. And I would spend hours in his dentist office because he had all of his heads in his dentist office. So it was pretty cool. And so we talked to him and that's how we kind of got our first first safari going was then we went in two, June of 2007 was that first trip. And I think my dad might have regretted it. <laughs> first uh, African trip? So it was the Eastern Cape. Eastern Cape. And with any specific outfitters? So I don't know. If, I don't think he's still in business any, anymore. It was uh, Louis Ladigan with Melody Safaris out of the Eastern London area. Yeah. Um, Do you know Louis? Yeah, um, Louis, he was around for, for some time. Um Held his own, put it that way. News travels in the industry, so uh, we'll take it as it comes. But yeah, uh, he had a great establishment back in the day. So, so, so what is it about Africa that keeps you coming back? Number one and number two, that you speak so passionately about it. Uh, I mean, I've I've been following you for some time now, and if there's anyone that's got a contagious feel about Africa and, and really revolutionizes what what we've been trying to do as a hunting industry, so what what back home what is it that got you you know man africa is the place to be what, what is it that you enjoyed coming back time and time again i think it's just you know the whole like it's everything about a safari really it's not even like i can't even pinpoint one thing because it's you know you're talking to new people you're learning different languages you are um seeing tons and tons of game tons of just different stuff the diversity of the the experiences far beyond anything here in North America. You know what I mean? Like, even if you go on a guided elk hunt here in North America or sheep hunt, you're going to only deal with like two to three, maybe four people max in camp. You go on a safari, you can be dealing with anywhere between five and 20 people, depends on where you're at, that are going to be, you know, employed by the operation between trackers, skinners, cooks. Like, it's just the whole gamut of safari is something that is unmatched i think and that's i think that was the whole thing and i like doing different things because i grew up hunting deer and elk and i love it but it's i like it's a oh it's like a competition around here almost more it takes like a lot of the fun away from it because you know we're trying to shoot big quality stuff i think you know Africa takes the cake on it and then i'd go asia next asia is next because the different the amount of species you can hunt and see in africa on a given day outweighs anything here in north america like here in wyoming like today literally i was telling you i was trying to shoot this coyote couldn't get a coyote shot then there was a fox out here but i won't shoot the fox because they're too pretty even though i've never shot one they're too pretty so we won't shoot them but there's a coyote so that's two which is odd that we've seen both those in our pasture today but like on a normal day hunting you'll see a mule deer You'll get lucky and see an elk. If you're in the right area, you might see an antelope. And that might be it for big game. Maybe a moose. Like you're going to see 
at max five big game species during a day if you're lucky. In Africa, even in the most remote places of Cameroon, Tanzania, you're going to see a lot of different stuff. Mackenzie, once again, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. And it's something I've been trying to project from, from my side as well, is that, you know, hunting is not just about coming out and killing an animal. It's about the experience. It's about the journey. Um, it's about friendships and it's about sharing passion. And, you know, it's it really resonates. And I, I love that about how you've told the story from a hunting perspective, but you get to tell it on the other side of the of the pond. So... To me, it's just like, you know, I watched a lot of TV when I was younger, and I would watch, like, the Jim Shockeys and guys like that. And I'm like, damn, that looks cool. I want to go see that stuff. You know what I mean? And it's a lot, like, I guess I, for me, it's, you know, I did play sports when I was, like, in younger, you know, like, grade schools and stuff like that. But I never was a big sports guy. So I never chased sports, and I never, like, did any of that stuff. So it's just kind of like hunting fell into my thing. And even though I, you know, I love North America, it's just like, I've, I don't have like a brain that's hardwired that there's more to life than just here. You know what I mean? So it's, and it's like reading old books, like reading old books, seeing photos. You know, I used to hate to read. So it was mainly just seeing photos and seeing videos or going to trade shows and seeing all these mounts of these animals that it's like, what is all this? So then I started just diving in trying to learn. And that's just kind of where it went from there. It's just, I think there's more to life and it's more to, to, to it than just hunting because it's the experience of it all, you know, and the journey of everything. And it's just like, well, I want to see like, so now it's more like, I'm not like sure. I want to hunt these species, but I also want to say, Oh, I've been here. So I want to tick off the box and say, I've been to every huntable Africa country, you know what I mean? Just to be able to, you know, cause that's cool when you can say that. Plus I want to be able to see and experience how it is and see the people. So I guess the long answer of that is just like the whole the unknown of it, I guess, is what drove me more to liking it. It's just like, well, what's that going to be like? Some safaris, uh, your Instagram, YouTube channel, is that there as a separate entity now? Is it a business? Are you running it as a business? Um, what can we see from it going forward, um, bringing and, and projecting the African safari adventure? Uh, you know, I've tried to do a lot of different stuff within the hunt industry. You know, I used to have a TV show on the outdoor channel, done a bunch of different stuff. And to be able to do a lot of this stuff, I don't like, I'm, this is like bad to say, but I don't think you can make un enough money in the hunting industry to be able to do a lot of the stuff and be able to live a life. So it's not really a business. Like the way I'm going about now is just, I want to share it and I want to help other people. If there's any sort of monetary value or, you know, any sort of value that gets kicked back my way in between, that's a plus side. But for right now, I'm just like, you know what? I want to help other people because, you know, I think you, because I went into things thinking, okay, I'll, I'll make, you know, a little bit of money here, be able to do this. It makes it harder that way. And you put too much emphasis on the business side of it, like the money making side of it. So to me, it's just like, I want to build a platform and a brand for people to learn from. Whether I make money off of that or not, because I'm going to go make money somewhere else, doing something else to actually fund it. Um, that's kind of how I look at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, I mean, with your guys' politics back home, I, I never realized how bad your guys' politics has such a huge impact and effect on our hunting industry back here, you know. So every time you guys have a downward spiral, um, you know, it kind of affects the hunting industry, yeah, because our main clientele is from, from the Northern Hemispheres. Uh, so let's hope, Trump 2024. Yeah, no, exactly. It, it's, it's crazy how, like, one one thing that's not relevant to hunting can change a lot of the aspects of it.
So, I mean, been to South Africa and Africa like so many times. What, what have you got left? I mean, is there anything left for you to hunt? Uh, man. So I did a spreadsheet. I made a spreadsheet up on Tuesday and I still have 103 species throughout Africa to hunt. So like mentioned, you shot your first buffalo in when you, when you were just a teenager. Have you completed your big five or have you still got to get it, get it done? I got, I got the big five. I've done that. If I, I, I need two more to complete my second big five. Um, I need another elephant and another lion and that will finish a second big five for me. Um, but man, I still got, I need like red diker, Cape Grice Buck, Sharps Grice Buck, Sunni, like, you know, color variations of things. Like there's still a quite a handful of Southern Africa stuff, but then I need all the stuff from like Uganda. I need to go back to Cameroon to the forest again. I need to do the Derby hunt, um, and Savannah species. I need to do the Western Kudu and Chad along with some of the other species up there as well. Um, I need to go back and hunt different areas of Ethiopia. Um, never been to Zimbabwe, so I want to do that. Never been to Mozambique, so I want to do that. Um, there's still stuff in Zambia I got to go back for, such as like the Sitatunga and then the Lechways. Um, there's just a shit ton of Africa I still need to do, and I could do it all over again. So I see the passion has led you down to the Eastern Cape, uh, my home province, and I see you do a lot of hunting here with uh, Johnny Safaris, which is great. Um, what, what keeps you bringing back? I mean, do you, do you enjoy the Eastern Cape that much? <clears throat> so the Eastern Cape's really, it's just a beautiful, like the scenery is awesome. Um, I do like how you can be on, like when we did the Orby, we were down on literally on the ocean. Like you can see the ocean. Um, like the Eastern Cape, it holds like a lot of, obviously there's a, you know, like there's obviously the color variations and the stuff like that that's been bred in South Africa. But I feel like it's a more, when you're on the Eastern Cape, it's, more old school um south africa you know same with like kwazulu natal like some of the more kind of remote wild stuff of southern africa because you get a lot of free range stuff throughout eastern cape as well which is nice um and there's species that you can only find down there you know like the cape bushbuck and the uh the eastern cape kudu so going back to your experiences and and what you live for as far as the hunting goes i mean you have to tell me about the experience that you had with the gorillas because that's been a lifelong dream of mine. So the gorillas, um, the scariest part about the gorillas in Cameroon is like when you're driving down through the forest, it's like straight up thick trees on both sides, you know, thick trees, brush, and you'll be driving on the road and all of a sudden this gorilla will come and it'll be like 10 yards from you, but you won't ever get to see it. And it would, it would scare the shit out of you on the truck. Everyone, even the trackers would be like, you know, looking. And then there was a couple times we'd walk into the Salines and there'd be a gorilla there. And that was super cool. Some of the crazy stuff was like when we were calling dikers, because you're in the forest and you can't see 20 yards, you know, and you're calling, but the chimpanzees would come running in. You wouldn't see them, but you would hear them. And my PH, Danny's like, whatever you do, dude, do not shoot a chimpanzee because it's like, that's a big no no. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, don't shoot a gorilla unless we have to because it's like, but I mean, you could, it could very easily happen. A chimpanzee could run you over, you know, calling in a diker or a gorilla could run it into you when you're tracking the bongo. Like it's pretty wild just thinking, you know, and then you got the snakes and shit that are there. And it was, there's just so much there. It's just wild. So Mackenzie, with all your experiences and um, your knowledge that you've built up over the years, uh, traveling different places in Africa, what, what has been the highlighting factor? You know, 
in South Africa, well, I, I see it a lot of the time uh, when it comes down to arguments on social media and stuff. People will just say, you know what, we donate the meat to the village when, you know, you know, as well as what I do back in South Africa, that's not the case. So going back up north, what differences from a conservation point of view have you seen that the different countries have benefited from the hunting side of things? Yeah, so, I mean, prime example, like you said, like in most of South Africa, it's not like you're taking meat to a village. You know, a lot of the meat does get donated, but you might be taking it to different places, and, and the hunters are not normally involved in that. We dropped some off to a school with John X, but like, you know, for the most part, you're not just taking a full buffalo to some random village and dropping it off in South Africa. But the, the big conservation part, like I'll kind of break it down throughout Africa. For me, like the big conservation part in South Africa is you guys have preserved like 50 million acres of um, what they call it. It wasn't like it was farmland, but it was not great farmland. So it was converted back into wildlife habitat. So you've converted so much wildlife habitat. You saved the black wildebeest. You know, the southern orby, like I shot with John X, like there's so many species that have been saved in South Africa and habitat that's been saved. And there's been so many jobs created. That's a big thing. Like, look at how many jobs have been created within South Africa, just, you know, between the dip and pack, the taxidermy stuff, the trackers, like all of it. It's amazing how many different jobs have been created. And then, like, when you go to like Zambia, so like when we we're in Zambia, we'd shoot the buffalo. And we'd have it's a it's like the rule that all the buffalo get have to you can't keep any buffalo in camp. They have to be distributed between the different areas. So we shot a buffalo. We take it to one village, drop it off. Shot another buffalo. We take it to a different village, drop it off. And then we did the same thing when we shot an elephant in Namibia. We had to take it and have it dropped off. But it's kind of like a different aspect of it. Like you know, I think South Africa and Namibia have the best conservation model as far as it goes of creating the value and saving the saving the wildlife and then in the other places it's you know the hunting areas is what's kept the wild stuff wild because without the hunting and anti-poaching funds that shit would have been you know poached out or there would have been livestock moved in and then you know habitat demolished because of livestock and you see that everywhere like ethiopia is a big one the mountain yala if it wasn't for jason and nasa russo's you know, protecting these areas and starting it out in the beginning, there'd be no mountain y'all left by now, you know, because it's, it, and it's not the fact that people don't like the wildlife. It's like the, there's not the logic's not there because there's no value for them in some areas. And so they'll come in and they'll be doing like the coffee bean plantations and all that in Ethiopia, and, or they'll be moving, you know, demolishing stuff for livestock, burning the brush for livestock every year, and it just destroys a lot of the natural habitat for the wildlife. I don't really, it's not like a, you know, I don't think Africans mean to do it. Like, it's like, oh, we're just going to erase the Cape Buffalo from the face of the earth. It's, they're trying to do it because they're trying to survive a different way, you know. And I think there's a big misconception when it comes to it. Like, I'm reading a book right now. It's, uh, it's, like, it's like a game animals of Africa, or antelope, antelope of Africa. And I was, like, going through it and it's talking about different species. And I love how they word this. And I'm be, being sarcastic when I say I love how they word it. They word it saying uncontrolled honey uncontrolled hunting is not hunting that's poaching you know what i mean that's illegal hunting hunting is controlled you know what i mean if you think about hunting is controlled poaching is not hunting to me that's and most of the times like the funny thing is like a lot of people here in america will think well those people are just poaching animals so they can eat food themselves 
No, most of the time that's not the case. They're poaching it to sell it to make money. So like in Zambia, when we would drop the buffalo off, it was only the women allowed to pick up the buffalo meat because there's a high percentage chance that, that the husband or whatever, the man in the house, would grab the buffalo meat and would sell it on the way back home to buy booze or something else and wouldn't even be able to feed his kids. You know what I mean? Like it's it's crazy how that is. So with that being said, and a lot, and a lot of, um, you know, as, as corrupt as Africa can get, were, were, were there often times that you find yourself in a predicament where maybe you thought that, wait, hang on, yeah, my hunting dollar is not going to the exact places that I intended to go? Or did you kind of have a broader perspective that saying, wait, hang on, I'm yeah, um, I'm going to enjoy this experience and, and, you know, whatever may be, may be. Um, although a lot of guys are out there to take chances. You no, know, I, I, I'm sure at some stages there's little things, you know, there's always behind the back deals with when it comes to government, especially when you get in those other countries like Tanzania, you know, those places where you're dealing with a lot of government stuff. But I think the overall whole of things, I think it goes to a good cause because you see a lot of the effects, you know, like that's the thing compared to like someone writing a check to PETA for $20,000 and mailing that to them. They don't see where that goes where a guy comes hunting, writes a $20,000 check to you for you know a 10 day safari such such and such species you see a, a lot of that effect because you see the people you employ i see the areas that you have you know whether you're you know hunting your own place and then we go to something like the orby or blue diker you you see the different you see where the money goes and that aspect and then plus you see the people that get employed the food that gets distributed in those areas like you get to see a more hands-on approach than anyone that's just talking on Instagram or writing a check to PETA. Like, that's my funny thing is, like, anyone can be a keyboard warrior, but not very many of them will actually go put their money. And, it like, any any amount of money helps. You know what I mean? Like, if someone wants to donate money to, like, SCI or any of these organizations or, you know, say you have a project that you're wanting to do in one of your areas, build some borehors or, you know, something like that, it's just, like, you know, anyone that wants to write a check is great. But until someone actually go put their – put their feet on the ground, see what's happening and actually put real money down. Like, I don't think they value it as much. Um, that's a big thing. Like here in America, they talk like you see all this like right now, the wolf thing in Colorado is a huge topic and I'll probably get some shit for this, but like you see so many people just beating the drum on social media. Like the wolves are going to take out the deer and elk, you know, everyone needs to help us out. It's like, well, who have you helped out in the past? Did you care about, leopard importation have you cared about elephant importation if you haven't cared about anything else then i really don't think you deserve any help because as hunters we all get in these two little niche groups and everyone categorizes ourselves like deer hunters sheep hunters turkey hunters elk hunters now we're all hunters that's how it needs to be and so i think if you can't support everyone else don't want just have to support you type of deal um that's just how i look at it and whatever because i think it's only fair if like because that's the only way we're all going to be able to keep our love and passion is if we all help each other out. Like you got to support, you know, grizzly bear hunting. You got to support, you know, mountain lion hunting in California at some point if they can ever get it back open. You know what I mean? Like you got to be able to support everywhere to be able to make sure we all stay together. Because what a lot of people here in North America don't realize is, you know, Africa's super vulnerable. Asia, just because it's like the pol politics is a, it's corrupt and it's different. So, like, what happens, like, let's just say they shut down all hunting in Asia. Let's say they shut down all hunting in Africa. But then where do all the different anti-groups focus on? They focus on us here in North America. 
They don't realize that. And, and the UK and all that has the biggest anti-hunting. That's like the mecca of anti-hunters is like the UK and that stuff. So what happens when you get all those guys, they shut down all the hunting around the UK and England and Europe and all that. They get all that shut down. Well, they're not going to just say, cool, we succeeded here. We're just going to stop. No, they're going to all focus on North America. Same with us. If they shut down hunting here, they're going to focus on there or there. It's just we all got to work together. And that's kind of my big conception of the whole conservation model of it is I think we all need to – to realize we're all on in it for the same thing and obviously there's a few people that aren't you know what i mean there's a few bad eggs but it's it's very minute compared to the whole scheme of things so with that being said and and, and the different conservation patterns the way you've you've highlighted it has been perfect i mean it really just highlights how we've got to stick together as a hunting community um, that's that's key. That's ultimately key for the for the broader, bigger picture. So, what would the discussion be, or or the argument you would have for people saying that you know South Africa? I'm sure you've had experiences being down in the Eastern Cape, um, with South Africa having a lot of half fence properties to hunt from. Yeah. So to me, you know, to each their own. You know, I respect everyone's thoughts and beliefs on whether they want to hunt high fence or not. But my thing is is you know, without the high fence hunting in South Africa, there wouldn't be a lot of the same species around. You know what I mean? And so whether you hunt high fence or not, like, you know, like, let's look at like, I'm trying to think of a spe like a s specific species. Like, let's say the black wildebeest. If you're in an area, you know, like obviously they, they were saved pretty much by the high fence hunting. You know, their numbers have flourished because of it. Like, let's look at it this way, like, or we can even look at like look look at a sable, for instance. Let's say there goes my light. <laughs> One second, let me pick that up. Um, like let's look at it this way. So like the sable, because the sable the the species the numbers of the species was really limited at one point in time, you know, and throughout wild Africa, you know, because you'd have the southern, you know, you'd have like Zambia, you would have a little bit in Namibia, you know, so and so, but like without high fence hunting the prices of some of these animals would be stupid ridiculous. The value of them would be so high because of, you know, such a small demand. So I think to me, like the best way to look at it is it, it's all about the experience of it. And you can go to some of these high fenced areas in South Africa and they're huge, like 30,000 acres, you know, gigantic. Right. And so to me, it's like, if you go to a place and you don't ever see the fence, then is there really a fence there? You know what I mean? Like, Without the fence there, there wouldn't probably be any, any animals there in true aspects of things because we've talked about this. You know, Africa has the highest growing population out of anywhere. You guys will overpopulate yourselves before anything else. Um, and so it's just like the high fence stuff has helped save so many different animals and keep so many places. It's wild because it's there's still the natural habitats there. It's wild. Sure, there's a fence around it. And plus, let's go look at this way. If there's any dangerous game on a high fence place in, in South Africa, there's so many people, there's cities, you got areas. You would have elephants running amok. You'd have lions running amok in these areas, getting hit on the highways, causing more destructiveness. Because there's a lot of good farming country, too, in South Africa. You'd have a lot of – and then they'd have problem control shooting of the elephant. And then there's nothing brought – you know, like if you go shoot a problem control elephant, there's not any value brought to that animal, really. You know what I mean? Because there's no non-Americans coming over there spending money or Europeans or whatever. So I guess that's a long-winded aspect. There's so many different ways to look at it. Is 
don't knock it till you go experience it is my kind of thought. Now, again, we've talked about there's some bad eggs. There's a few bad eggs. There's a few really tiny places, you know, guys doing stuff poorly. But if you go to a high fence place in South Africa with a quality outfitter and they do things right, you're not shooting from the truck all the time. You're not chasing game like they're actually caring about it. If you show up there and you experience it, I think it would change your mind on the high spec, high fence aspect of things in my eyes. Well, Mackenzie, the big one. Uh, you've just released your your YouTube episode on it. Um, trade show season's around the corner. Well, it starts this weekend with Dallas Safari Club. Um, I'm sure you've 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 been to plenty of them. You you're living proof. You've had a successful uh, safari adventure with uh, the trade shows. So tell me a little bit more about it. Tell me um, if, if I'm playing devil's advocate over here, I've, I can always tell you from my point of view, but from, from that side, um, what are some of the key factors that you would highlight for individuals coming out, not only to their first trade show, but coming out to look to book their very first African safari or African adventure? Yeah, so, you know, it's a great point. Like trade show seasons here and this is like the best time for anyone to start planning their first or next safari whether it's going to happen this year or years to come my advice is you know you can see somebody on instagram and they can have a great instagram but they might not have the best outfitting business my advice is go to the trade shows sit down and talk to them like how we're talking right now you know i mean you know skype zoom those are great ways of doing it too if you can schedule that with an outfitter but the minute you can go and sit down and talk to them and say Oh, you know, just kind of get to know them and you kind of learn about their life and you get a vibe to feel if you are going to be able to match. You know what I mean? Like just talking to you, I can say, okay, I would, me and Dylan can hunt together and have fun. Like I can already see that. You know what I mean? That's the big thing about these trade shows is you can sit down and see if you guys are going to have fun. Cause it's not fun if you, you know, like, let's just say you book something over Instagram or over, you know, email and you show up and you don't you don't mesh with your outfitter or your pH. Like you're not going to have fun during that trip. So you want to be able to learn if you can mesh with them. So one, just go sit down and talk to them and look, there's a hundred thousand different guys at these trade shows. There's going to be bad eggs in all of them. And that's just anything in life. You know, there's going to be the guys that can smooth talk you will and deal you. And my next thing is don't always go for the best deal because the guys given the best deal are usually the ones that are going to be the shady ones. That's how I look at it because you can go and I see it all the time and like I'm not bashing on anyone, but you go to these trade shows and you see a $5,000 Cape Buffalo hunt. Well, and the photos that they have on their banner, they're all softball bulls, but the typical person doesn't know that, which is, you know, I mean, to me, you're, you're, that's just to me, that's just not what you want to do. So it's just like things like that. Don't go for the best deal. Like obviously people work hard for the money. I understand that, but the same thing, like whether you're buying a car, a house, whatever it is, you don't always buy it. But, you know, logic tells you don't buy the best deal because sometimes the deal is too good to be true. You know, kind of weed in there to the middle. And then there's guys that are next level expensive, but also there's a reason they probably are. You know, they're probably providing extra value at something, so on and so forth. So be cautious that way. I mean, to me, regardless of if it's a really expensive South Africa outfitter, it's cheaper than North America elk hunt these days. You know, the average elk hunt in North America is between twenty and thirty-five thousand dollars now for a good class elk. So to me, it's like it's it's donuts and peanuts type deal. You know what I mean? Like you can go to Africa and spend you know the same amount of money and have triple the amount of fun that you can here in North America. And I so I say, you know, sit down, talk to them. Don't go for the best deal. 
And my next one is have some reasonable expectations. You know what I mean? You're going to be going to a different country. You're going to be, you know, like in South Africa, load shedding. Like that is the craziest thing ever. You know what I mean? On safari, it's not going to always be the, you know, the power is going to go out. Like all this different stuff. Like don't have expectations based off of what you see on Instagram and Facebook all the time. Because going back to it, there's a few people. That have been to Africa three times and it's been with the same outfitter. They, to me, those people have no idea what real Africa Africa is really like. You got to go. You got to if you're going to learn from people, learn from people that have experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can't just go off of one person's one word because they, they could be dealing with the shittiest outfitter, but they think it's great. You know what I mean? Because they haven't experienced what a real great one is, type of deal. So kind of just be careful on what you're who you're listening to and stuff like that. But go, I just say go to the trade shows, meet all the people because like I said on my Instagram story the other day, you guys, South Africans, African outfitters overall, I think you guys are some of the nicest human beings and you are actually generally looking, looking out for people when they come over there. You guys, you guys created the hospitality in the hunting industry. If you ask me, like every outfitter in North America should come over on a, a safari in Africa and take note because the way you guys treat people compared to the way North America outfitters treat people is nine day difference. I mean, that's, that's awesome. And, and such great feedback, but so two questions for you. First one is you're coming out to a trade show for your very first time. Uh, you're looking to get a reputable outfitter. How many days would you suggest somebody coming out for, um, that will give them the utmost amount of time to have these sort of discussions to find out a little bit more about their next safari adventure um, and take it further and then my second question will be is on time period how long would you suggest your very first safari should be um, or if you're coming back how long would you recommend going forward um, to, to have the utmost or let's say the best experience possible so trade show wise, if you're going to like Dallas or SCI, the two kind of major players in the, like, let's say Africa industry wise, you got to go for at least two days, at least two days, if not the full show, because one, you're going to spend, you can spend one day not talking to anybody, just walking up and down every aisle, looking at all the badass mounts and just seeing it all, soaking it in. You know what I mean? And plus, like, let's say I, you know, you're at a booth. Dylan, and I want to talk to you, but I pass by three times and you're busy, you know, because that's how it gets, especially on this Friday and Saturday at a trade show. Now, if you really are serious about talking to somebody, I say you show up the first day of the show because that's the slowest day and that's the best day for you to sit down and, com and have a conversation with somebody. You know, the Friday, Saturday, Sundays, those days are freaking busy, you know. So that's what I say to someone going to a trade show. Minimum of two days. Go the first day if you have a game plan of talking to a, spe a special outfitter. And then for your first safari, I think seven days – That our first safari was seven days. I think it's too short. I think a first safari because it's your first time. You don't want to rush it. You don't want to – and, you know, some people – you know, some people aren't going to be able to go to Africa every year, twice a year, or every two or three years. Some people are going to go to Africa every five years. Some people are going to probably go to Africa once. So I say do a 10-day or a 14-day. My best suggestion would be 14 days, especially if you're going to take your family, because then you can hunt for, let's say you hunt for eight or nine days, and then you can spend, you know, three or four days um, sightseeing, going and looking at different things, experiencing different parts of it. 
um, regardless of where you go. So I, I would say 10 to 14 days, my best bet for a first safari. If you can swing it, do a 14 day because you get a full experience and you get to enjoy it a lot more. Cause I mean, I've went on five days safaris and it's just like, you're a freaking goat. You know, like when I went with John X, we were freaking, you know, because we were going to hunt different species, we were driving all over the place, you know, trying to go do the Valerie book, go do the Blue Dyke, or go do the Orby. It was kind of like, you know, there wasn't just the, the chill safari vibe to it. So, I mean, I would say plan, you know, 10 to 14 days if, if you could. So I've, I've, I've always wondered, you know, and especially myself having now my small company, um, you know, trying to do as, as many um, hunts and, and do it for for the good reason of conservation but does traveling take away from the experience when you're on safari is that something you need to consider when asking these sort of questions um what what would your advice be from from a traveling perspective i, I always say that that you've never really experienced i mean you you hunted the oribi down on the on the indian ocean back down in port alfred it's a beautiful place but you wouldn't get that same experience um, if you weren't chasing those specific species. So does that take away from, from the overall experience or, or does it add to it? You know, I don't, I think the traveling adds to the safari. I think it adds to, especially, you know, like the Eastern Cape's big for this because you're traveling so much to like, cause you can be in the Eastern Cape and want to go hunt different species and you might take a two day trip to this area because I, I do find a lot of outfitters in the Eastern Cape, especially kind of do the same thing you're talking about Dylan is where you have different outfitters go to different areas or different farms because that landowner has the best of this you know habitat wise species wise whatever so you guys kind of move around a bunch i think it builds to the experience because you know sometimes driving gets really boring but man if you're in africa for the first time you're not going to think it's boring you're going to be like holy shit you're looking around you're in awe you're taking it all in you know and and the cool thing about it like a good pH as he's driving, he'll be like, oh, this is what this is. These are those mountains or he'll kind of give history, you know, throughout the drive and kind of explain things because that adds a huge value to it, you know, and you get to see so much like South Africa has such a, you know, from, from Northern Cape, Eastern, you know, from the Northern Cape of South Africa, you have like all sorts of different areas that you can see KwaZulu-Natal, you can Limpopo, you can be all over and see so much different terrain if you're driving um, I think it's just one of those things that it, it adds to the safari. Sure, it takes away some of your time of hunting, but you get to see so much cool stuff. So, so with that being said, and, and you've, we've highlighted, especially in this podcast, how important relationships really are. And from my point of view is that I've seen it time and time again. I mean, Carl from John X, you've got Jason Stone, you've got the guys, Breastside Safaris that are experiencing and, and, and broadening their horizons, going up into North Africa, um, broadening their perspective on the hunting industry as a whole. So how important, number one, are those relationships that you build back at home um, for future hunts to come? Um, and is that something that you would consider? Would you consider taking a reputable African outfitter that you've used before back, even if it is in the Eastern Cape, taking them up top to hunt in, say, places like Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, those places like that? So that's a good point. So, you know, you got people like Carl, John X, you got Jason Stone. You even have, you know, the Kelly guys that are kind of venturing out into other areas and taking their clients places. And I think that's great. Um, for me personally, I don't 
like I'm not going to go hunt with the same outfitter in five different countries because you don't get the same experience that you would if you went with a guy that is from there. Like obviously I hunted Zambio stone and he's not from there. Um, he, but it's kind of like, to me, I think Jason does more of his own stuff in Zambia and his brother does all the South Africa stuff. So he's kind of like, that's his, you know, primary area. Um, but I'm not going to go do like Ethiopia with him. I'm going to go do Ethiopia with Jason Russo's. You know what I mean? There's just different things and there's no, you know, no offense to Jason Stone. I'm not like, I love him, but I'm going to go do it with someone that's been pretty much born and raised there, you know, has experienced the whole thing. And so it's, you know, and I understand there's PHs that will go like, you know, you got Guab Johnson who will go and guide for Mayo Drilly and stuff like that. And I would love to hunt with Guab in Cameroon, but I'm going to hunt with Guab. I would love to hunt with Guab in Zimbabwe. You know what I mean? Like those guys are kind of bouncing around, but that's kind of like their main turf. I think to me, if you, there's some people that love sticking with the same person because it, it gets rid of a lot of headache and a lot of guesswork, which is totally fine to each their own on that. But to me, I'm like, I want to go experience the country with someone that's been there forever type of deal you know what i mean even within south africa you get outfitters that will go from eastern cape to limpopo northern cape it's like there's guys that will go all over even within south africa i want to hunt with guys that are kind of kind of located there you know like guys from quality in the tell i want to hunt with them there you know guys from limpopo i want to hunt with them there eastern cape i want to hunt with people like you that are kind of isolated there like located there you know what i mean because like home base no one's going to know your home base better than you, you know? And so that's kind of how I look at it. One of the, one of the big questions that, that I always get asked at these trade shows, and, and it's something that I never really paid a lot of attention to until I was caught out a couple of years ago up in one of the North countries, um, Zambia, to be in fact, um, where a lot of the hidden costs weren't accounted for. So came the end of the safari, um, the, the guys came to pay their bill and they were slapped with another $15,000 bill at the end of it you know whether it be for uh airfare or tro trophy transportation and stuff so so what are the questions that you would suggest people asking um to their outfitter to their outfitter that they've chosen to make sure that they're, they're, they're not any of those hidden costs because you know even something as small as we offer um free transfers um once you land in south africa what, what are some of those hidden costs that you would highlight and and recommend people to keep asking those sort of questions so for me like if you know if like if you're going to tr especially trade shows because we're kind of on that subject you know so let's take it you go to a trade show you sit down with you and when you're talking what you want to do is say okay what's you know what's a part of the package like especially in south africa how there's packages you know you say okay what's a part of the package perfect okay what's not a part of the package perfect then when you go into like zambia tanzania and stuff you got you know your vat fees you got freaking you know transportation fees like you're talking about charter fees charter fees are a huge thing like in car the charter fees are like fifteen thousand dollars so that's just fifteen thousand dollars by itself that's kind of like an unknown cost to a lot of people they think you just show up and go hunting no but by the time you're hunting car like most people are going to be like kind of through the gamut of Africa by the time they get there. But like, just find out what fees are for transportation. Like you're saying, pick up at airports or is there, you know, another small airplane ride that you got to get to like from Johannesburg, to the Eastern Cape or Johannesburg to the Northern Cape or whatever, like, or is someone going to pick you up and add that to the cost? Or are they cutting the cost difference because they're dropping somebody off and picking you up at the same time, you know, type of deal like that. If you and your buddy go, are you going to split it type of deal? 
things like that is what I would look for. Um, and then another thing is, especially when you get out of South Africa and you get in these kind of more remote camps, you're going to have a lot of different working people that you might not expect, you know, because you got to have people that are kind of running the camp. You got people, mechanics in camp. Get a list prior to time if you need to of how many people to expect to tip, you know. And I, I think I think it is mandatory to tip. Like a lot of people don't think it like I think it is mandatory if you had a good experience, if you had a shitty experience that's up to you but to me it's you know get a list of all the people that are in camp because you know especially like your employees like the trackers and stuff like that a tip man a tip for them is their entire year you know what i mean like it is such a big deal to them and it makes them so like so excited so like when i went with uh, my buddy donnie and hunted with him and i gave us trackers two guys in camp working as trackers and stuff and skinners and i gave them a tip he sent me a picture of what they went and bought one of them bought a fridge and one of them bought a tv with their tip money you know what i mean like it's just like it was cool that he sent me the pictures of what they actually bought with their tips so it's pretty sweet to see that um so yeah get a list of how many people are going to be in camp that way you're kind of prepared when you go there as far as tip goes um you know like in zambia buffalo price the trophy fees go up when you shoot buffalo so the first one, let's say the first one's twelve hundred bucks. Well, the second one's gonna be like eight hundred bucks or whatever. They go up in price because that's government wise. Tanzania, it's opposite; it goes down. It's it's kind of crazy that how that stuff works. So those are kind of costs that you need to kind of picture ahead of time if you have multiple buffalo on license and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, as far as hidden cost goes, I think those are the big ones. The transportation one, you know, especially. And then, you know. If the outfitter does in-house dip and pack, you know, or let's just say this, make sure that, you know, maybe the outfitters start including the dip and pack into some packages for you or they don't make sure what's not, in, you know, get it, get it in, in writing ahead of time. You know, most outfitters are really good at telling you what's not included because they, they know they don't want a headache at the end of the trip. You know, someone like there's bad ones that will try to squeeze in there because they know they can get it on you. But there's a lot of you guys out there that don't want the headache of dealing with a pissed off client. So you let them know up front. You know, I mean, I think it's so much easier for me to say, hey, Dylan, you know, your beer like some like this is a weird thing, but some camps don't supply beer. You know what I mean? Like your beer is an added cost. You got to tell me what you want. We got to pay for that ahead of time. Type, you know what I mean? Or the Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi in Cameroon was an added cost and we had to pay for that ahead. You know what I mean? Like things like that. Like let them know ahead of time. Don't let them know why you're there because that just kind of will put a bad taste in their mouth. Or at the end of the trip when it's like you get the villains like, well, what the hell is this for? You know, like a prime example is in Tajikistan when we went there, we said, hey, we want to know how many people to tip. In Tajikistan, we were in the middle of BFE, you know, mountains, and there was like five people in camp. But when we got the list of how many people there were in camp, the tip, there was like 20, and there wasn't 20 people there. Like, you know, on safari, you can kind of like see how many people are there, and it's like, oh, man, I didn't realize that many people were there. Tajikistan, you could tell exactly how many people were there, but they were creating extra jobs for people to get more money type of deal. It was a little bit weird that way. So it's just like that was kind of like one of those costs that you're like, well, what the hell? So just kind of look at things like that, I would say. So while we're on the uncertainty of, of questions and stuff, um, you, you briefly mentioned taxidermy. What what would you suggest? What would you suggest for you, the first time hunter coming out to Africa? It must be daunting spending all this money um, and not know where to put it on your pieces of memorabilia that you get to take from your safari trip. What would you suggest? Having it done in South Africa or Africa 
or opposed to dipping and packing, taking it back over to North America and having it done there? So I've actually changed my perspective on this over like the last two years. I used to think, oh no, don't get it done in Africa. Cause we've had stuff done in Africa, but we had it done in Africa freaking uh, like 14 years ago. So the quality is a little bit different. Um, sorry, I keep knocking my light over. Um, anyways, so uh, the, pro the difference is, so like nowadays in, nowadays, I think the taxonomy quality has went up significantly in South Africa. But so one thing is, is, you know, look at the guys at Splitting Image. They've done some great videos explaining the cost of things, so on and so forth. And I think anyone, if they have any kind of thoughts of like, well, is it cheaper to have it done here in America or done in Africa? Go look at the Splitting Image stuff. They've done some great videos. You've done some podcasts with them. Like, look at the stuff that they've produced because they break it down and explain it to you really well. Now, there's some things I think you should have done in America. Um, certain species but other than that i think it's kind of based on where you're at and what you're looking for you know what i mean and because like i could break down the cost and it could be rough ball figure ballpark figures but like i said like they went through and they broke down the cost of okay here's a crate shipment of shoulder mounts compared to dip and pack and then i think it's just kind of to each their own you know what i mean now if you're not going to come back to America or wherever you are and go to a respectable tax and get it done here in America, get it done in Africa because the guys in Africa are going to know what those species look like more than your cousin that does white tail deer out of his garage for a case of beer. You know what I mean? Like to me, it's if you got a guy in America that does tremendous Africa stuff, he's probably been there a couple of times, you know, use him. But if you don't use the people on set, you know, you split an image, like for a great example, use them because they're from Africa. They've done tons and tons of it. It's like, you know, like, again, it goes back to your cousin doing whitetail in his garage for beer. He's done a lot of whitetail, but he's never done a Cape Buffalo or a Kudu. You know what I mean? You got to be able to reinvent that memory. And to me, taxonomy is not something that you want to skimp on, especially if you're doing shoulder mounts or pedestal mounts or life size. You do not want to skimp on the work because then when you get that animal back, it doesn't bring back the memories as good if, if it comes back as a poor quality mount. So Mackenzie, with the show season done, um, we've touched on it. Are you going to heading down to any of the shows? Um, have you got anyone, any shows lined up for, for 2024? Uh, Nashville SEI. That's my plan is to get down there for that one. Well, we'll definitely see you in Nashville. Uh, we must definitely link up and have a couple of beers and, and chat hunting. I'll, I'll be looking forward to that one. So with that being said, um, any safaris planned for, for the upcoming season? Um, have you got anything booked or if not this year, maybe next year? Uh, man, I was should have been out there in a couple of weeks, but I just can't get out there. I was going to do some, uh, some kudu hunting. Um, my next trip would probably be Kwazulu Hotel area gonna do uh, red diker and stuff. stuff. I'm gonna do um, civet and serval. Try to do those as well because I haven't done those yet. Um, like I said, man, I'm a guy that I could go and hunt kudu. I could come to Africa and hunt kudu every year. So it's not like I'm not doing the same species over and over. Um, I would do the same species over and over. Uh, so yeah, I think the first trip would be coming over there doing the red diker, civet, serval stuff like that, some smaller critters like that, and then just kind of play by ear and see. We need to get together and do something. I know that for sure. 
So Mackenzie, once again, it's it's been an absolute honor, but uh, really, it's your your infectious and your passion for Africa really um, it transcends, and I, I can't tell you how much and how grateful we really are for that to happen because you just shed such a positive light on the South African industry. Um, with that being said, uh, Sim Safaris, what is it all about? Is it still running? Um, is it operating as a separate entity? Where can people find you? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. So the, my Sim Safari page, and it kind of goes back to your question earlier about hunting industry wise. I have a pay, like my Sim Safaris page is just an information website. You don't got to pay for anything. You get on there and you find quality outfitters that I've been with. Um, and like the YouTube video that I dropped today, it just says, if you go to my Safari help link that's on my site and fill out five questions, I will email you back with f the answers to those five questions tailored to what you're wanting. So the questions are, you know, what species are you wanting to hunt? When can you be uh, gone from home? How many days can you be gone? And are you bow or rifle specific? And then the last one is if, if you need a travel agent or not. So I, I, I would create an email back to you answering all those kind of saying, okay, go with Dylan if you want to do the Orby, you know, like certain species. Because some people are going to be like, well, I want to do X, Y, and Z. Well, you can't really do X, Y, and Z on every safari. You know I mean? You got to pick and choose where you're going to be because you could be wanting to do uh, a red diker, but then also you want to do stuff in the Northern Cape. You can't do that in one safari. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. So it's just kind of, I want to help people learn that there's certain safaris that aren't feasible unless you have X amount of days and can travel. But I want to just give people like a starting step stepping stones to get their first safari booked or their next safari booked by saying, okay, here's the six outfitters I would recommend for Kudu. Okay. Here's the six outfitters I would recommend for doing the Orby hunt type of deal. You know what I mean? That's kind of how I go about it. And I'll be doing a lot more blog posts and email stuff through my Sim Safari link um, for anyone that wants to just sign up for my emails and stuff and then follow me on Instagram. That's about it. So I'll, I'll definitely be tagging as much as I possibly can down below. Um, but if people are listening to this on the road or wherever it may be, uh, where can they find you? What are some of the handles that they can use to, to contact you or even just get into contact with, with you? Uh, maybe it be for references from John X or, or whoever you've hunted with. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so my YouTube is just Mackenzie Sims. And then uh, my Instagram is just Mackenzie Sims, but it has Mackenzie the two under slashes sims um that's how you find me on there and uh just my my name and then sim safaris is simple it's s-i-m-s -S, safaris um just kind of like the snowboards and stuff like that video game sims <laughs> mackenzie thank you so much for taking out the time to join me on this podcast first one for 2024 i'm pretty pumped up about it uh, what an episode to kick off the new season um it's been epic thank you so much once again uh, and just on behalf of myself and i'm sure so many uh, hunters out in africa thank you so much for shedding a positive light on on our african industry um and just sharing the your passion with us it's it's just really um it's transcended to so many different um camps and i'm really really looking forward to meeting up in nashville and having a couple of toots um but yeah thanks so much mckenzie have a wonderful day and uh hopefully you get that coyote sounds great man i appreciate it thanks dylan really enjoyed this man